but there still is a last-minute opportunity. I just noticed Dr. Tony is up in the balcony. Um, he is leading a team um, with Impact Ministries in May, May 1st through the 10th, I believe, and so it's a last-minute opportunity, but if you still want to go and be a part of that team, there's still space on that, and you can see Tony, see um, Lewis Chan or myself, and we can help get you connected with that. And then um, also Rita's not going to be rude, but she's going to be leaving immediately um, after we pray with her, so she won't be here for our fellowship time just simply because she's got another speaking engagement this morning. So we'll say goodbye to her in just a moment. I also found out Rita grew up in this neighborhood. She said that she used to walk by our church um, and walking to high school every day. So she's back home for a little visit. But let us um, pray for you, Rita, and for the work that God is doing in Guatemala. Sovereign God, we honor you that you are a God of life. And, Guy, I see in Rita a woman of life because you have given her this abundance and a heart. God, it is not a material abundance, but, God, she has opened herself to say, whatever I have can be used by you. And so, God, we thank you that even this morning that we hear of hearts who are responsive to your word. And, God, we want to be those people like, yes, come and teach us about Jesus. God, may that be even our posture this morning. Yes, come and teach us as people who are being taught by you and are instructed by you. God, strengthen the frame of these workers in Guatemala, the believers in this um, village in Taktik. God, may your presence, your glory, your honor be known among these people. And God, we thank you for our friend and sister, for Christy, who has said yes to the things of God in her life, and she is making new friends and relationships, and God, continue to expand her capacity to share your love. And God, we thank you for Rita, and even for the short time that she has um, here in Vancouver, and even as she shared, part of the reason of her trip is to come and, and be present with her father who is aging. And so, God, would you bless that time that she has with her father. And, um, God, even though she is so far away on a day-to-day basis, but, God, just multiply the moments that she can share a very physical touch and spoken words and presence, God, um, while she's here in the city. And, God, um, continue to increase our heart for your glory among the nations. God, there are people in our city and our nations who are hungry, who are desperate for the word Jesus, because that's the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. And God, may we be people who are about that, who are not lazy or apathetic or burdened by our own sin and junk in our lives, God, that we are so unable or so incapable of being able to freely share our lives and bring the glory of the kingdom of God, God, among our city and to the nations. And so, God, we thank you that we see witnesses of that and new life coming about. And bring your glory, Father. Bring your glory. And even as we listen, even again today, of what does it mean to live in the kingdom reality, strengthen us, God. Open our hearts to be obedient to the things that you are calling us to be about. We love you, Jesus, and it's your name that we pray. Amen. I heard you in an exciting Sunday last Sunday. Medics and paramedics and doctors working up here on Hamish and all kinds of stuff. I saw Hamish on Monday, and he was feeling more rested and better and, and appreciated the help 
um, medically and spiritually and stuff from the church. And uh, so I said to someone this week, wow, what do you do this Sunday to top that? He said, well, you could collapse during your sermon. So I said, oh, maybe I won't do that. But anyway. We want to come back to this series we've been doing on the kingdom as uh, Cindy's prayed for us this morning. Josh McDowell, who's a Christian writer and apologist, said in the 1940s, the three main problems in schools for teachers, what teachers faced, uh, were talking, running in the hallways, and chewing gum. Those were the three big problems that teachers faced in the 1940s. You ask teachers today, um, and you listen to the news, I think we would find something like bullying, very much top of the list, has been very much prominent in BC, um, with someone, very young lady, very sadly killing herself um, some time ago, very recently actually bullying, and then drugs, um, and then sexual activity amongst uh, senior highs and junior highs, uh, boys and girls. And so we really no longer live in the good old days, although I'm not convinced that some of the good old days were good. A lot of things have changed, some for the better. Some maybe not for as good. Our kingdom picture this week comes from a parable. Uh, remember what a parable is. It's stories that are taken from life. And it really will help you this morning if you have your Bible or your iPod or something you can track with me. And turn to Matthew chapter 13. Okay? <clears throat> that will really help you. If you keep it at Matthew 13, it's a whole chapter about parables, kingdom parables. We're going to talk this morning about kingdom realities. And we want to start at verse 24. And so alongside the stuff of life, Jesus says will be called an ordinary picture, just something that happens. Matthew 13, 24. Jesus told them another parable. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the wheat also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, um, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Why, where then did the wheat come from? He replied, an enemy has done this. The servant says, do you want us to go and pull them up? He said, no. He answered, no. Because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in the bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat into my, and bring it into my barn. Now, go down to verse 36, because Jesus then explains this parable and what it means. It will help us this morning. Verse 36, he left the crowd, went into the house, his disciples came and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He said, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. Remember that. The weeds are the people of the evil one. An enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so will be the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all those who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, there will be weeping, gnashing of teeth, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Whoever is ears to hear, Jesus often says, let him hear. Now, people have done a lot of things with this parable, but remember a parable really has one key truth. What's the essential message of that? Let me suggest that it comes to us in verse verse 30. Which is, let both of these different kinds of seed, the good and the bad, grow together until the harvest. Let me suggest to you that that's the key issue that's going on in this story. 
The parable is about what I will call this morning coexistence. It's about the realities of life. Alongside God at work, Satan's also at work. Where God is sowing light, Satan is sowing darkness. Where truth is being sown, so also is doubt and deception. Where God's people are trying to make a difference for good, because Jesus says that the seeds are the people of the kingdom. Someone else is working just as hard trying to sow chaos and moral anarchy. But you know and I know that in a city like Vancouver, Victoria, where I live, this is reality. This is the real world. One day Jesus says there will be an apocalyptic intervention. Where Jesus will break through in power and in glory. Things will be changed in a final harvest. The kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. Isn't that right? And when this is started, when that will be finished, there will be the fulfillment of the kingdom when it will come in full power and glory. But we are not there yet. So until this time of intervention, we have to live in the reality of fallenness. The reality is that the kingdom is here and now, but it is not fully here. And so we have to stick on this truth of verse 30, which is what I call about coexistence. It is a parable teaching us about the reality of having to live in a fallen, sinful world. About the dynamic of coexistence. Things that are diametrically opposed, living and existing side by side. The best of God alongside the worst of things. Now, in a church like this, we are trying to do our best to raise our families and children. To build a home that models what's good and honoring. We're trying to help young people to teach morality and decency. And in frustration, I think, at times, we often feel that there's another force at work. Undermining what we are trying to do. Seeking to destruct what we are trying to construct. And the truth, very frankly, is yes, there is. There is someone else at work. Working just as hard to tear down what we are trying to build up. It is not as simple as God saying to Satan, okay, you take one country and I'll take the other country. You take one city and I'll take another city. You take one street and I'll take another street. You take one school and you can exist there, God, no interference, and I will take another school. And then, I guess we decide as Christians what country we want to live in or city or what school we want to send our children to. The struggle is that life is all mixed up. God and Satan are both working in the same city, on the same streets, in the same schools. And we have to learn then the work of coexistence. We may not like that, but that's the reality of the kingdom. So here is a parable, a story, about the tension, the struggle, the stress, and the challenge of living in a city and a culture that is not yet fully God's. It's about the role and the challenge of being kingdom people in our culture of postmodernism, individualism, and consumerism. One day, as we said, the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. But that day is not here yet. And if we try to get there too fast or too soon... We will try to bring everything to a final harvest too soon. The parable warns us about that. Jesus says we will actually mess up the work of the kingdom. So let me this morning in our time, let me open up a few ideas for you. They need a lot more thought. They need a lot more development. They need a lot more application. 
at both a personal level and a corporate level. This morning, I just want to stir up your minds a little bit to get you going and to get you thinking. Okay? Here's where we start. We say that God's kingdom does its best work in the world. You know, we have a whole lot in common with people who live in the thinking of what we call the world. Uh, We shop in the same stores. We bank in the same banks. We live in the same streets. We work alongside people who live in the world. Think for a moment of the many, many things that go on in a city like Vancouver. By people. Raising funds for cancer. For MS, the Heart and Stroke Society. School and community efforts. Blood banks and children's sports and baseball and soccer. Many of these staff entirely by non-Christians. Why? Uh, know why that is? Because we're often in meetings at church. Come back to that. Police boards, hospital boards, library boards, local school activities, ministries to the poor and to the marginalized. You see, there is so much that we live in the world. There's so much that we can do. And this aspect of coexistence might then pose for us a kingdom question. Which is, how can we release people into these areas of community work that will make a kingdom difference? We've been talking about this the last couple of weeks in our adult class Sunday morning related to the Sermon on the Mount, so they can know where I'm going with some of this stuff. I know that some of you are involved in these things. But what if that was enlarged and extended and became a deliberate philosophy of BC, BCBC as part of its good neighbor citizenship ministry? What if it became a kingdom strategy and was discussed at church meetings as well as overseas missions to Guatemala or anywhere else? What if that became part of a local missions philosophy? So as well as asking, who will serve on our council? Who will serve on the deacon's board? Who will serve on the missions committee? Who will serve with children? Those are all important things. Don't Please do not misread me. Maybe we could all be asking, who will serve on the local hospital board? Who will run for school board? Who will serve at a local school? I am well aware as a pastor for 40 years in the churches we've been in about the struggle we have to meet our own needs and staff our own programs. I understand that, believe me. But we must start to think beyond ourselves for the sake of the kingdom. The community is simply not going to show up at a building on a sunny morning because we're here, we open our doors, and we put out the welcome mat. We are called to live and serve in our world. I think it would be radical for the church to limit the number of people involved in its ministry. Even reduce the participation and commitment. So we could release the maximum number of people in a deliberate and planned way into the life of the community. For too long, the church has put itself on the sidelines of the community, on the sidelines of the city, with a couple of disastrous results. One of these is, the average person in the community does not think of the church as part of the community. Number two, the average Christian may somehow not know how to relate to or be involved in community life. What about classes to train people for kingdom involvement in the community rather than just service in the church? Let me take you back to the Sermon on the Mount. We've been talking about this. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? No longer good for anything except to be thrown out trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. They put it up high. And it gives light to everything. In the same way, he says, let your light shine before men. It means the community, the city. So that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. John Stott, who for many years was regarded highly as an evangelical statesman, writer, pastor, theologian, says in one of his books on this, he says, Christian salt has no business to remain snugly in in elegant little ecclesiastical salt cellars. Our place, he says, is to be rubbed into the sacred community as salt is rubbed into meat to stop it going bad. And when society goes bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and we reproach the non-Christian world. Sarah, should we not reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. The real question, he says, is where was the salt? Or we might ask, when a community and a city seems to be in darkness, we might add, where was the light? I am well aware of the pressure that faced with the growing power of opposition of Christian truth to institutions and agencies over the centuries and in the last years since the end of the Second World War, 1945. Many Christians and many churches have withdrawn and pulled out of community-based programs. They've pulled away. And as a response, they've initiated and have started up similar Christian-based ministries. I understand that. I understand the reason that they do that. I grew up, as you know, in Glasgow in Scotland, um, which is a little closer to heaven than anywhere else. That's another problem. Um, I grew up in a Baptist church. And I attended, when I was a little boy, I attended Cubs. And then I went on to Boy Scouts. The girls attended Brownies, and then girls Brigade. And these were run by the leaders of our Baptist church, and the meetings were held in our Baptist church. Very much part of the life and the youth ministry of the church. Some of our best church leaders were the leaders in the youth organizations. We did church parades, all kinds of things. And then over the years what happened was, the church began to pull out of and pull away from these programs and establish their own organizations with the Christian philosophy. I understand why. But then the philosophy of the scouting movement, the girl guide movements, began to change. And we must ask ourselves, is it any wonder? Because the salt pulled out. For five years I was the senior minister of First Baptist Church here in Vancouver, downtown, Barard Nelson. And next to First Baptist Church was a building that now expanded greatly, which was known simply as the Y. You're going to go to the Y. We're going to work out, we're going for lunch, we're going to the Y. People say to the Y. You know that the full title of that is the YMCA or the YWCA, in which the word C stood for Christian. In a local community like this neighborhood, one of the most effective ways to change community is to run for school board or to be involved in PAC meetings of the local community organizations, hospital boards, police boards, things of grassroots community life. The problem for us, especially in leadership in churches, is that many of us are already too busy at the church. 
Let me ask you, does the kingdom require us to turn that around? Does the kingdom require us to release people from church ministry into kingdom ministry in a world? I'm often asked, as people in Victoria meet me and they find out where I'm doing, where I'm working, and they say, how many people attend your church? Let me tell you, that's not the right question to ask. The better question to ask is not how many people come on Sunday mornings. The better question is, how many people do we send out each week? Kingdom people, salt people, light people, people whose life in Christ will make a radical difference where they live and where they work. That is the real question. Because Jesus says, we live in a world. Let me add to this, another picture of coexistence. When God's kingdom is at work, small things make a big difference. You've got your Bible open, Matthew 13, 31-32. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of the garden plants becomes a tree, so the birds of the air come and part, perch in his branches. Apparently, to be really fair and honest, the mustard seed is not the smallest of all the seeds. But it was a common idiom for people to say as small as a mustard seed. So Jesus is not trying to drive Christian botanists crazy. He's talking figuratively. He's using a common picture idiom that people would understand. What he's telling us and saying to us is that if projects are done with the heartbeat of the kingdom, what one person starts has great value. Small small things have great impact. Do you remember the name Rosie Parks? Remember Rosie Parks? One day she wouldn't move from the back of to the back of the bus and let the white folks sit where she was. It sparked a flame that became the civil rights movement. And later Rosie Parks was asked if she intended to start all of that. She said no. She just said she was tired. And she really didn't have the energy to move to the back of the bus. But it ignited a movement. In his book, Kingdoms in Conflict, Chuck Colson talks about what he calls little platoons. A nameless army of men and women who develop all kinds of grassroots projects of love and care and ministry. You see, our culture, particularly B.C. with the government and so on, Looks at what's done under the bright lights with lots of publicity. When we see some need, what's the government going to do about this? And so in response, the government may come up with a new program, which of course needs a massive budget. They go out and buy hundreds of computers and they rent office space. They hire lots of people. Whether anything changes much or not isn't the question. But when prompted by the kingdom of God to do something, the actions of one person under the authority of the kingdom has enormous value. Jacques Ellul writes that the answer, the antidote to the illusion of change coming from large government programs lies, he says, in small associations of people. A small cadre of people can do for the kingdom of God. Culture, he says, is most profoundly changed not by the efforts of huge institutions, by hundreds of computers, by floors of office buildings, by a big administration and lots of money, 
But rather, he says, culture is changed by individual people who believe that at the street level where they live and they work, they can make a difference. We know all too well the government has an insatiable appetite for power and control. And they've got a ton of money to finance his programs. Often there is great suspicion about what is actually accomplished. Ordinary people do not require the same amount of administration. One person or a small category of people to make a difference, Jesus says. I think today we see in many of our cities that these little platoons of people are on the front lines helping those who are homeless on the streets. Nameless, faithless people who make warm soup. One young lady we know in Victoria is known as the hot chocolate lady. Who goes and gives hot chocolate to the street girls working in the streets. People who make peanut butter sandwiches. And they just take them out and hand them out of the streets to serve people. Many years ago when we were in our church in Calgary, we became <coughs> we became involved with a mission in India. We didn't have a lot of money. But what we did in Calgary was we gathered up some of those old treadle sewing machines. You know what they are? Remember treadle sewing machines? The ones that you, your feet box them back and forth. There was no point sending electric sewing machines. Why? There was no electricity in the village. But people could use these small, electric, small treadle sewing machines. We started up some micro-economy businesses where you could lend very small amounts of money. I'm sorry to say this, but say this with honesty. We found out you did not give money to the men. They spent on beer or women. You gave money to the mothers. Because the mothers understood the responsibility of looking after their children and making a difference in the village. And they set up little companies that sewed dresses and all kinds of stuff and clothes. Our failing and our short-sightedness, often in North America, is we believe the myth that things can only be changed by large efforts. We have surrendered to the myth. We've been seduced by a lie which says one person cannot make a difference. That is not true. One kingdom person can make a difference as they believe that what they're doing is kingdom work. And they do it in the power, the blessing, and the grace of the kingdom. What may God be calling you to do as a kingdom person? Another picture. When God's kingdom is at work, everything, everything is influenced. Again, go back to Matthew. Chapter 13, verse 33. Jesus calls this the parable of the leaven. Another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast or leaven that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus uses a simple household image. Everyone would understand to translate into a timeless truth. In the Bible, leaven is used to communicate the idea of something small influencing or affecting the whole lump. In the preparation for the Passover, there's a, um, there's a searching of the game in which the children search the house for leaven. It's a kind of a, kind of a hide-and-seek kind of a game. And leaven symbolized the fact that there was no time to make leavened bread in the wilderness and watch it rise. Now, often, to be fair, leaven is often used in the Bible as a symbol for evil. Jesus and Paul both used it as a symbol for something evil. Jesus talks about the leaven of the Pharisees. But when he's using this symbol in this parable, it is neutral. There's no negative or evil influence. He's just reminding us of an essential principle. Something small can influence and permeate everything. 
true of evil. It is also true of good. So you see, one kingdom parent, one kingdom family, one kingdom teacher can influence the ethos of a classroom and an entire school. Its internal attitude and how it operates. One kingdom person can change an apartment building. One kingdom person can change the spirit of a neighborhood. One kingdom teacher or pupil can change a classroom. One kingdom person can change the direction of a meeting. One kingdom worker can change an office atmosphere. When we find ourselves in the middle of the turbulence and the tension of this coexistence, in which good work is mixed with evil work, light is mixed with darkness, truth stands with deception, then we begin to ask better questions about discipleship, and we will take a more active role in really deepening our faith. Discipleship classes with no context, no higher purpose, become mere information. But when discipleship is connected to a goal, when it's something we need to learn to survive, and not be overwhelmed by an opposing spiritual force. Discipleship becomes a necessity. Two areas in which we need to really learn more. I've mentioned these to you before. Go back to them again. Number one, how Satan works. We need to be wise in how Satan works. He seldom makes a frontal attack. His tactics include half-truths. Remember what he says to Eve in the garden. You shall not surely die. Now you don't believe that story, do you? You don't believe that kind of nonsense, do you? He is a master con artist. The ultimate counterfeiter. It's a verse in Second Corinthians 11.14. Have I got it coming up or not? Do I? There it is. Good. No wonder, says Paul, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. I won't bore you with all the Greek words stuff that goes behind this, but the key word in that is the word masquerades. It means that, when it says it masquerades, it means that Satan does not have light in his inside, in his morphe, in his inner essence. God is light on the inside. Jesus is light on the inside. We are called to have morphe as light on our inside. But Satan does not have light in his morphe, in his inner being. Satan has light in his schema, in his outer appearance. That's what the word masquerade means. He looks like light, but he does not have light in his inner being. So do not be conned by simply what you see on the outside. Remember um, the lion, the witch, in the wardrobe. The white witch. What does she use? Turkish delight. Remember that? Turkish delight. Masquerade. That's a great verse, by the way, 2 Corinthians 11.14. You need to know that one or mark one. Okay? Satan does not have morphe, does not have light as morphe as inner essence. God has, not Satan. But he can masquerade, he can counterfeit himself. That's the point of the verse. That's why Paul says, I think, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. One of his schemes is to counterfeit. To counterfeit. Second thing we need to know. We will have an increased, I think, from what you got last week from Dr. Guthrie. We will have an increased desire to know our faith. To know what God's word says better. 
Stand firm then uh, with your belt, the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the blessed righteousness in place, your feet fitted, the radiance that comes from the gospel of peace. Take the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the fire, flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We begin to see this as a life and death issue when we understand just how high the stakes are. When Jesus was faced with the temptations of Satan, he drew understanding the power of the word of God. Remember he says it's written, man, people, do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes, every promise, every line that comes from the mouth of our God. So you see, knowing God's words, not just a cost from every Sunday morning, it's not an optional extra for those really keen Christians. It is the armor of our daily battle. It's our survival suit. We begin to read and study it seriously when you get a picture of what we are really up against. So we live in a world, and your children go to schools in a world of coexistence. We buy groceries in the same grocery stores, all kinds of stuff. So we just huddle away in, in our own little corner in the church. No, says Jesus. He throws us into the into the harvest that's going on in the world and calls us to live and to stand and to grow with coexistence. He said, you're the salt of the earth. Get out there and salt things. He said, you're the light of the world. Get out there and shine. Tommy, do you want to come back? And we catch that in a great song. You've known it for some time. Shine. Jesus, shine. Please stand. <laughs>